0: Are. Um, it's, it's a corporate thing, that family, there we go, um, how important it is for families to be in, in worship together. Um, and, and if you notice in your hymn book, under the title Amazing Grace, there's the script there with the verse of, of John chapter 9, verse 25, where it says, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Again, this is the story of the blind man born blind from birth. And if you remember, the disciples come upon this man with Jesus and they ask him, Why is this man born blind? Was it because of his sin or the sins of his parents? And earlier on in the chapter, verse 3 of chapter 9, Jesus answers saying, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. How beautiful it is that this understanding they come to him, to their Savior, to Jesus, and is saying, what did he do so wrong for him to be born blind? Where Jesus simply says, no, that the works of God may be manifest in him. And this is what we sing in this song, and has even led us into this. We were blind, but now we see. The very work of God has opened blind eyes to see his glory and his beauty in a way that only God himself can. And again, I think... Um Davey shared with us last week or two weeks ago that this is the most popular or most commonly uh, played or performed song, about how wonderful that is, so thank you for that. I'm not going to start preaching John 9 and then Ecclesiastes, so I'm going to move into where we are. You guys don't want that. Uh, but this morning, we're going to continue again our study here in Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 4, looking at verses 4 through 8. Um, I consider going from 4 all the way through 16, as we could kind of tackle it as a section, but I quite honestly didn't trust myself to try to go through 13 verses um, in a very fitting and exegetical fashion. So we're going to stop at verse 8, and then next week we're actually going to see some familiar verses. If you remember where we left off, we were in 3.16 all the way through chapter 4, verse 3. He has talked about injustice. In a place where there's supposed to be justice— Solomon has observed and he has looked around and seen nothing but injustice. Essentially, similar to today, when we see injustice carried out by a court, we sit back and we're greatly troubled over it because that's the one place that we're supposed to, as a society and as a culture, expect there to be justice. And so he sits back and says that this was not so and how he sees wickedness under the sun in the place of judgment. And it continues on saying how man is created from out of the dust, and when we die, we will all return to dust. Our physical bodies will return back to dust. And as he laments many of these things, talking about those things that he's seen under the sun, in verse 3 he says, Yea, better is he than both they, which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun, He's lamenting a very existence of life, where in previous chapters he says that he even hated life as he saw it under the sun. And it goes so far as to where he's now envious of those who have not yet lived, because they simply haven't had to endure or participate in or see the evil works in the world. Now stop for a minute before we get into verses 4 through 8, a perspective that says it's better, I'm envious of those who have not even lived because everything around me is so awful, it's so heinous, and it's so terrible. We see this continued sense of despair in every single text as Solomon parses out or describes out this idea of those who live under the sun. And this is what he's observed, much like what we talked about throughout the last few Sunday schools, is a perspective under the sun. His conclusion is that all of it is vanity. It's meaningless, that there's no purpose to it. And we're going to see here in verses 4 through 8 a different approach to work, which he touched on in previous verses, but now we're going to see an approach to the working world. Let's read Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4 through verse 8. Again, I considered all travail in every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is an handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet there is no end of all his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor and breathe my soul of good? This is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you in this time, this morning, to to receive your word with gladness. I, I pray that it would be a a joyous time of study of the very revelation that you have given to us through your word. We praise you in this time, not only for all that you have done, the mighty things that you have done, but most importantly, for who you are. God, you are incredibly good and loving and merciful and kind and exceedingly patient with us. Lord, I ask that in this time, though it may be brief, that Perhaps this morning you would do as you've done all too many times before, but that you would take blind eyes and allow them to see, that by your Spirit you would reveal those things which are true, and ultimately that being all that you've done, the very glory of the face of God and the very work of Christ. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we see an approach to one of our favorite four-letter words in life, which is work. It inhabits so much of our time, so much of, the, of our efforts, of our energies. It's one thing uh, that constantly is consuming, especially within the Western world. It's a driving conversational topic and all of the political conversations about work and how much we should work and how much we should be paid and where we should work and who should employ who and who should have. This is a constant conversation and battle and struggle. He begins here in verse four with an observation about the working world. He says, "Again, I considered all travail or all work, and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit." Now, as we approach work and as we continue in seeing these, I want to read back in Ecclesiastes 2:24, where he says that there is nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor this also i saw that it was from the hand of god now we understand that work is itself a gift from god that the command of working this idea of work is prescribed to adam before the fall and that shattered me when i was younger because i always wanted as i told you guys to grow up and to say well we only have to work because of the fall, so I don't want to work, because that's sinful or something. right? Pure laziness. But understanding that what was Adam's duty in the garden, not only to protect it, but to work, to tend to it, to be a steward, to take good care over these things. Work is something that, that our Lord has given to us as a command, and again, this being a pre-fall commandment. Work Is a gift from God and before we get too far stop for a minute and consider to yourself do I believe work not just my work but work to be a gift from God do you perceive your work or work in general to be a gift from God and our answer shouldn't just vary based on where it is that we work who we work with or how many hours we work The general underlying principle is that work is a gift from God. Whether you are loving your workplace or hating your workplace, work is a gift from God. But like all of God's, or so many of God's blessings, work can be distorted by sin. And here he attributes much of our motivation and work to envy, this desire to get ahead of others in life, and saying that because of our labor, because of our work, We may even be envied by our neighbors or because of our neighbors' work, we could be very envious of them. We sit back, we see how much they work, we see the fruits of their labor and we say, I want what they have. They have so much more than I do, so I need to work harder, I need to work better, I need to do more, and we have this constant ladder of I need to outdo those that I'm working with, where envy is a primary motivation for the work that we do. And here as he does this, and while there are obvious exceptions for why we work, I think if we were to do a poll, do a survey, which I always dream of actually doing someday, because us Baptists don't raise hands, so I don't know how to get anything else out of you guys. Do a selective poll and say, why is it that you work? What is your motivation? I don't think that too many of you, because I know so many of you, would say, because I'm envious of what others have. While there are obviously exceptions to this, the preacher here, Solomon, brings up a very valid point where constantly work is driven out of a motivation to be better than someone else. Think about competition in the workplace. And I'm not talking one company against another, but competition of employees in the same workplace about, well, I've done this, especially within sales, right? This is where we see it probably most impactfully. Well, I sold more than you this last month. Well, I don't want him to be better than me. I'm going to have to sell more. I'm going to do more. I'm going to overcome and get ahead of this person. Of the things that we are tempted most to envy, our neighbor's possessions are probably number one. The things that somebody else has, especially someone that we can see, or especially if we see them constantly, we can grow very envious of these things. Perhaps the most important example or the most um one, the one that we recall the most is obviously going to be David and Bathsheba, where he's sitting here, he has so many different things, and he looks upon another man's wife and says that, I want her, so what does he do? He decides, I'm going to go ahead and take her so much that he even has the husband killed and lies about it. It's not because he didn't have enough. Because though it may not seem this way, it's not just those with very little that are envious of what someone else has. Because if you remember, then Nathan comes to him, gives him the harsh rebuke of, what would you say about a man who has all of this sheep, all of this livestock, all of these different things, and goes into a neighbor's fence and takes the one sheep that this person has? And David kind of pronounces his own judgment upon himself, and Nathan jumps right back and says, that man is you, David. Because we like to think it's only those with nothing that always want something more. But yet often this is what um, progresses in the heart of a rich person. And so especially within our Western culture, we have this cycle of we work hard so that we can buy more things. Then others envy what we have so they work harder so they can buy more things to have more than what we have. And then now we're envious of them. And this cycle is constantly continuing. Think about every commercial you guys have ever seen, whether it's radio, if anyone still does radio, right? Radio, television, all of these things. What is it constantly telling you in advertisements? Buy this. You need this. Yes, your phone works, but it could more work, (laughs) right? Now, again, I understand how to talk, sort of. But that proves the point because it's an absurd thing that we, we are constantly told, you need more than what is already good enough. Your fridge, does it keep your food cold? Absolutely. But you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't tell you, hey, your food's cold. <laughs> it doesn't have a clock on it. Oh, man, I need that. We're constantly told how much more we need. And though advertisements may not do it for us, what happens when we go into someone else's home we walk in, and we see how something in their house is set up. We're perfectly content with our own home, perfectly happy with everything that we have. We see it in the house of someone we know and go, I want that. I want that. Because what I have just isn't enough, because now I've seen that, and that is amazing. And so he draws this idea out of how envy is a primary motivation for, for why a man is going to be working. And again, he says this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Then he begins verse 5 with an observation drawing this comparison between the man motivated by envy in his work to overworking. Now with a comparison of the one who refuses to work. It says, The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Now, as I mentioned some of these things with with Brittany uh, last night, she just kind of was, ugh, right? The whole eating his own flesh thing, that's kind of weird. But think about how strong of language that is, that the fool sits there, folds his hands, and is eating his own flesh. The Bible uses absolutely strong language in so many places for a very specific purpose to show the severity of it, Right? When it talks about dead in sins, it's not like you're just kind of like sniffles in sins, right? Or you have allergies and trespasses and sins. It's dead because that's absolutely trying to show how destructive our sin is. Well, here he says the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Because the fool, the man who refuses to work, eats what he has until there is absolutely nothing left. So we see these two contrasts, a great chasm of contrast. the one who works way too much and way too hard to be better than everyone else, and then the man who refuses to work at all. Neither of these options are ideal. None of these things are the way that it should be. And again, this eating of his own hands shows how deeply self-destructive this process is. To sit by, to remain idle in all things. Again, sloth, right? One of these deadly sins that we see in Scripture. To sit. And not this is different than just sitting on your hands. It's folding your hands, refusing to work so much that now you're going to end up even eating your own flesh. So we see these diametrically opposed, both equal and opposite errors in our approach to work. You have the first group, motivated by envy, and the second, just not motivated at all. One commentator, I think it was William Brown, wrote, As toil can be all-consuming, so idleness is self-cannibalizing. So again, strong language. Staying in line with the biblical use of eating his own flesh, but again... Toil and work can be all consuming. And I think this morning, again, if we were to survey the group, some of us would say, Yeah, I don't have a motivation to really work at all. I have zero motivation. And if we may not say that about ourselves, maybe there's someone around us that would say, Maybe there's a lack of motivation. Whereas for others, we understand that our work is all consuming, that we work too much? We work too hard that our envy of these things, that so much of our work absolutely consumes us. Are any of these two errors a temptation? Well, much more quickly than he's tended to do at different points, verse 6, he gives us some advice. He gives us an answer, and he gives us a solution, one that we should be familiar with from back in the book of Philippians. Where in verse 6, this is what he writes. it says, Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. He says, One handful of quietness is better than two of toil. This is the bird in the hand, verse 2 in the bush concept that I just recently understood not too long ago. And you can laugh. It's okay. I get it. Some of you are afraid to laugh because you don't get it either. Right? <laughs> I'm not going to explain it to you. You're going to toil and be vexed by that. But here, this quietness, a good synonym, or another way of saying this would be contentment. Man, that's a tough one, isn't it? To be content in all things. When Paul writes in Philippians, I have learned to be content in all things, whether brought high or brought low. Here we find a middle ground between being constantly motivated to work out of envy, out of pride, whatever the motivation is, and on the opposite end, zero motivation to ever work at all. Sloth. Idleness. Where he instead is saying it's better to have one handful of quietness than to have both hands full of toil and of work and vexation. The advice, the encouragement that we see all throughout Scripture is this idea of contentment. Rather than strive for more, he or she who works is satisfied already. Are you satisfied? Are you content with what it is that God has given? Do you always need more? Are you constantly grabbing to have both hands full at all times, saying, I have a free few minutes, I must busy myself with work. Because I know someone else is out there working harder than me, and I have to do more, because I'm going to want what they have. Or are we content with it? Again, think about this. One handful versus two. If we were to ask anybody in so many different ways, we'd say, what's better, one handful of M&Ms or two handfuls? What's the kid going to choose? What, am I, what do you mean, kid? Who, what am I going to choose? What are you going to choose? You're going to choose two because it's more, right? Everything that we're trained to believe from the very beginning is you need more. More, more, more. If you had more of this, everything would be fixed. If you had more popularity, your life is going to be great. That will cure the depression. If you had more money, everything is going to be better. Or if you had more faith, then that sickness you're struggling with is going to go away. This is constantly what is repeated over and over and over. It's that you need more. The quiet man accepts and enjoys in what God has given. Now, don't take this to mean to not work hard. Again, I think many of you can be discerning and understand a difference. This is not saying, so therefore, don't even work. Work is vexation of spirit. It's vanity. Don't even work, but be content in your work. Don't be all consumed by your work, but on contrast, don't sit there folding your hands, absolutely refusing to work. Be content with what you have. And this was absolutely modeled in Christ, was it not? Who labored, who labored hard, was not idle, but yet was content and trusted the Father to provide for every single need. How often do we see the disciples sitting around saying, Jesus, I don't know, we don't have enough for any of these things. We're going to have to do all of this. And he just says, be content. We are to work hard. I cannot stress that enough. We are to work, but we cannot let work itself consume us. Here, as Christ would labor and as he would travel and teach and do so many things, he absolutely was not idle, but he trusted that God would provide. Even when it looked scary. Even when it looked like, hey, we're getting kind of close here. You notice no one was quick to go rush and just bake a bunch of bread when they needed food, right? God provided. And so here we see this consistency of being content and that the Father will provide us. As Matt was preaching a few weeks back, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Can you say that confidently this morning as if it's absolutely true that I need nothing outside of of my Lord, that I am absolutely content if that is all that I have, that if everything were to be taken away from me, I at least know God has gone nowhere, and I am content and satisfied, and that is sufficient for my life. I remember whenever I would think of these questions, I would say, of course, I just hope he never tests that, right? It was the idea of, absolutely, God, I know that you're all that I need, and you'll provide all these things, but please don't like, make sure. Please don't verify or check in on these things. There may be a time, whether it's soon, maybe it's already happened, whether it's far off in the future, that this may be a reality where there is a trying and a testing where there is fire to which the question comes back up of am I satisfied in my Lord and my God? Whether I have a job or no job. Whether I have a home or no job. Same thing when it comes to those that we dearly love, right? Right? Will I trust and and have confidence in what the Lord will provide if either I am to pass or someone that I, I am very close to is to pass? Can I still have faith and trust and confidence that God is still a good God? That I have no less reason to believe than I did before any of this took place. The Lord is my shepherd. That is a beautiful truth. And so verses 7 through 8. Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. Verse 8 here, he kind of offers a picture. He gives sort of a, tells almost a sad tale of this individual who is in isolation. The man works or lives alone. If he has a wife, there's no mention. It says he hath neither a child nor brother, so there is no heir to him. Yet there is no end of all his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches. So there's no end to his labor. He's constantly working, and his eye is not even satisfied with all of the fruit of the labor. Imagine this, living completely in isolation. No air, consumed by work, never satisfied with anything it is that you are doing. And he doesn't even say, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? day after day after day all these things are the same his work is vanity there's no time for friends no time for family he doesn't even ask the question for whom am i working why am i doing everything that i am doing just simply consumed by work and the eye is never satisfied with riches Because once we think we have enough, we always need one more. Our eyes are not satisfied. Ecclesiastes teaches us that work can and that it should be a pleasure as it is a gift from God, but not if we're pursuing our own selfish pleasures. Why do you work? I know this morning is different as it's been so focused on work, but it's something that all of us interact with. Why do you work? Who are you working for? We shouldn't be motivated by envy. We shouldn't be motivated, if we could say that, by sloth or being idle. We shouldn't be consumed by all of our work. And in the same way, we shouldn't just completely reject it and then use the cliche, well, I just don't want to be consumed by my work, so I won't do anything. Work is a gift from God with incredible blessings. Who is it that you're working for? Scripture has been very, very clear on why it is that we are to work and that in all that we do, we are to do it to the glory of God. Christians should be the hardest workers in the entire world because we desire to work well because we know who it is that we are working for. I'm not working just for a boss. You're not just working for a co-worker or a boss. Are you under their authority? Absolutely. But ultimately doing all to the glory of God. Imagine a world where every professing Christian worked as if their very boss was God himself. Because he is. It's not even a mental gymnastic trick, right? It's the reality of the Christian life. Your work, do so as unto the Lord. And in closing, I wanted to read an excerpt from, um, that I had found in one, in one commentary from the Minneapolis Tribune. Um, the author, Ellen Goodman, wrote this story. It was of a man who worked as hard as the man that we see here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It says that when he died at the age of 51, his obituary said the cause of death was coronary thrombosis, but most people knew better at the office six days a week, often until eight or nine at night, his friends and family said that he had simply worked himself to death. Yet on the day of his funeral, when the company was already making inquiries about his replacement, the president looked around the office for candidates and said, well, who's been working the hardest? But the killer line was delivered by the dead man's wife. When a friend said, I know how much you will miss him. She said, Oh, I already have. Work is important. But what is your work costing you? The idea of we will miss this person because they are gone and obviously the wife is greatly understanding I have already missed him. It's as if it's no different that he is going to be gone. Now obviously for... For parents, how important this is to understand not to be all consumed by your work. And we can often say, I'm doing this to give a better life for my kids, and I just want the very best for them. No child will genuinely want to trade time with their family, their parents who love them, for an Xbox. How important it is to be there with our children. But not just our kids, but with our spouse. The idea of, of a husband who's constantly consumed by work and never cares for his wife, doesn't even know what his wife is doing, has no interaction, no, no understanding that there is no time spent. How tremendously counter-gospel that that is to, to dive so hard into work at the very sake of relationships. Imagine Christ walking around as he's traveling from one place to the next. As any of these individuals come up Asking him to please, Lord, heal me. And he says, You don't understand. I have to be somewhere in two hours. I have no time for this. Or a disciple who comes and is conversing with him and says, Peter, I really can't have time to hear your complaints right now. We're trying to get over to this different place. We got to get over to Galilee. We got to go to Bethlehem. We got to imagine. But this is what we do. How often do we stop? and consider those that are around us. Extend it from out of the home. We have to be in a hurry to get somewhere. A spiritual conversation is taking place, whether it's at Target or a city market or out on the street somewhere, and we go, you know, I really can't deal with this. I have to be somewhere. How many other cultures in the world are much more people-focused? Not so focused and driven by time many of us wouldn't make it a day in colombia because eh we'll get there party starts at 6 you know when it really starts eh, at some point drive us insane right we started the service 10 minutes later this morning cuz we got out of sunday school a little bit late people were talking and all of this here i am i realize i keep looking at it going all right we we should probably get going anytime why does it matter people are talking there's fellowship We have time. How important it is to not be consumed so much by our time and our schedules and our work. And again, if eternity is the focus, we won't be consumed by our work, but we'll use our work to show the very glory of God in all that we do and how beautiful that it is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how clearly you speak in it, for how impactful and essential that it is for our life. Lord, we thank you for giving us the wisdom that we see here in Ecclesiastes of this contrast of those who work themselves to death, who work far too much and are consumed by their work in an equal yet opposite error of those who just simply refuse to work where we must understand that we have been given a command to work in all that we do and to do so to the glory of God and that work may not be for a paycheck, that our work may be where we labor in our prayers, it may be where we tend to a garden or keep the home and that in all of these absolutely critical areas of work, we are to do so to the very best of the abilities that you have given to us. Lord, it's my prayer this morning, and I'm hopeful that we receive your word with gladness and that we would truly meditate upon these things to be content with that which we have been given, that we do not succumb to the temptation of our eyes, that we need more and more, that we're constantly grabbing after things but that we would have a handful of quietness and of contentment and being very thankful with an immense amount of gratitude for all that you have given to us because we understand the reality is that we have all been given far more than we have ever deserved. Whether we have a lot or a little, any bit at all, is more than we've ever deserved. And Lord, we thank you most of all this morning for the very truth of the gospel that by the work of Christ there on Calvary as he died to take our punishment, to be a substitute there on the cross, dying a death that we deserved, that through his perfect obedience and through his sinless perfection and his conquering of sin and death in the grave as he ascends, being raised from the dead three days later, ascending to heaven at your right hand, that those who would believe upon the work of Jesus would be saved. Lord, we understand that there is no contentment apart from the gospel, that sinful man is never satisfied with just what it is that we have, but that sinful man, the lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh and the pride of life constantly tells us how much more that we need. And that our life is vanity under the sun as we seek for purpose without ever considering the reality of the contentment that we find in you, which is why... As your people, we rest in you this morning and we will rest in you for all of eternity because we have believed upon Christ and his work alone for salvation. God, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the incredible grace and the very gifts that you've given to us and specifically this morning for the gift of work. And I pray that we would perceive our work as gifts, not as burdens or as punishments, but as absolute gifts from you and that we would seek you in all that we do.